morning. It's good to be together today. Um, I want to welcome you to Spring Valley Community Church. Uh, last week, we began a new teaching series called Blessed. And throughout this series, we are trying to answer the question, what does it mean to be blessed? And so last week, we said if you ask the average person to define what it means to be blessed, a lot of us would refer to a successful career, financial security, being talented, having a good marriage, a beautiful family, being healthy, and having the means to enjoy the finer things in life, right? Like that's usually what we think of when we think about blessing. But if that's what it means to be blessed, then a lot of people in the world could never be considered blessed. That definition of blessed excludes people who are poor, sick, divorced, single, childless, and unemployed. And I hope that we don't have the kind of faith that says that people who are poor, sick, divorced, single, childless, and unemployed aren't blessed. No offense, I don't actually want to be part of a movement that's about material things. Because material things are just about me. The blessing of God should be for everyone who can receive it. Now let me be clear though. I believe that marriage and children and health and financial resources and jobs are all gifts from God. In fact, James, Jesus' half-brother, tells us every good and perfect gift is from God. But we need to wrestle with the fact that when Jesus uses the word blessed, he wasn't referring to our circumstances. He was referring to our spiritual condition. Last week, we started looking at the Beatitudes The Beatitudes are statements that Jesus made at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and each one begins with the word blessed. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us as followers, as his followers, how to live for him. The Sermon on the Mount is mostly, here is what you should be doing as a follower of Jesus. But he begins with the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes tell us not what we're supposed to do, but who we're supposed to be. The Beatitudes aren't about behavior, they're about our character. Quite simply, the Beatitudes describe the spiritual condition of those who are ready and willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads them. Today we're going to be looking at the second Beatitude, but one thing you should know about the Beatitudes is that they build on one another. They do not stand alone. Some have said the Beatitudes are like climbing a ladder. Jesus put these in a specific order because we can't understand what the next one means without first understanding the previous one. So the first beatitude we looked at last week was blessed are the poor in spirit. We talked about the fact that you can't come to Jesus and follow him until you sense your spiritual poverty. People who are ready to follow Jesus are those who realize they have nothing to bring to God except their broken life. And so what comes after sensing your spiritual poverty? Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that over these next few moments that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, that this message would get into the unreached parts of our life. Lord, you know even in my own heart there's unreached places. 
And in every heart in this room, there's unreached places. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to do the work that only you can do in the heart of every person who's here today. We need you, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What does Jesus want us to mourn? Most of us hate mourning, don't we? We hate grieving. We hate crying. We're not comfortable with the idea of mourning. In fact, we would never consider mourning a blessing. We try to avoid mourning at all costs, and we usually restrict our grieving to funerals. The Greek word for mourn is pentheo. It describes grief or sorrow that is so deep in your heart that it is accompanied by tears. And Jesus tells us that we are blessed and favored by God when we mourn. I don't know about you, but the last funeral I was at, I didn't think as I was standing there mourning, gee, I feel blessed and favored by God. I don't think that Jesus is at all talking about the grief we feel when we lose someone. Does Jesus care about that grief? Absolutely. Does he comfort us in that grief? Absolutely. But remember, the Beatitudes are about our spiritual condition, getting us ready for a life of following Jesus. So I don't think Jesus is talking about the kind of grief that happens when we lose someone we love. So what does Jesus want us to be mourning? Where is the blessing in mourning? It's mourning our sin. It's mourning our sin. In the New Testament, pentheo is often linked with sin. The Apostle Paul uses the word mourning twice when telling the Corinthians how they should feel about sinful actions of people in their church. Paul tells the Corinthians, you should be grieving about this thing. This should be breaking you up on the inside that there's people among you who are rebelling against God openly. And then James, Jesus' brother, writes in James chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. He's talking to followers of Jesus, by the way. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then he says this, grieve mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You could tell it's going to be a pretty upbeat message. This also makes sense in light of the first beatitude. It's not just true that we're spiritually bankrupt. It's also true that we are sinful. And the right response to recognizing our sinfulness is to mourn over it. But I think there's a really important question to ask at this point. A lot of us intellectually immediately understand that I should, I should feel sorry about my sin. Okay, I get that, Joe. But I think a really important question to answer is, is what is sin? No one really likes talking about sin. The closest most of us come to having a real conversation about sin is usually in reference to a piece of chocolate or a decadent dessert. Have you ever sat down in front of a meal or in front of some cake and thought, this is sinful? That's not sinful the way that we're going to talk about today. We tend to think of sin as simply doing the wrong thing. But let's be honest. If we limit our understanding of sin to making a bad decision every now and then, who among us is going to get real broken up about that? We make mistakes. We did the wrong thing. Okay. Everyone makes mistakes. But I want us to wrestle with this morning, what is at the core of sin? Where do our sinful actions find their origin? 
What is Jesus really wanting me and you to mourn? Romans 1 gives us a window into the human heart and gives us a solid understanding of what sin actually is. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And as we go through this passage, I just want to point out a couple things about what sin is. Paul begins this way, how we, most books we love begin this way. The wrath of God. Everyone's pumped up. The wrath of God is being revealed. Oh, that's encouraging. From heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So catch this, wickedness or sin, if you will, is suppressing the truth. Sin starts by ignoring some kind of body of truth and pushing it away. But what truth are we suppressing when we sin? The truth about who God is. See, people suppress the truth because what may be known about God is plain to them. Sin suppresses the truth about who God is and ignores it. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So no one gets to claim that they are innocent of their sin because everyone, catch this, everyone on planet earth can see how the world is created and at least know that there is a creator. They may not know Jesus by name, but they can look at creation and they can think this must have been done by a divine being. This must have been done by someone who is eternally existing. But what do we do instead? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So sin isn't simply rooted in ignoring the truth about God. Sin refuses to glorify God and thank God. Sin, catch this, is a refusal to worship God for who he is. And then verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in, their sinful desire, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And then verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And now some of you are like, well, who's Paul talking to here? All of us. See, because he begins chapter 2 by saying to the Jewish people, you're no different than what these people do who are the Gentiles. And then in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. And then he says later in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. So if you're trying to wiggle out of this and saying, oh, this isn't about me, you're wrong. It's about me and it's about you. And what do we learn about sin? We learn that sin hates the truth of God. Sin suppresses it and then exchanges it for what sin loves and worships. Sin loves to worship and serve images. 
We live in a culture of images, and that's what we love to worship. Sin loves to worship and serve creatures and not the creator. That's at the root of sin. Sin is ultimately when we declare with our actions, with our words, motives, and thoughts, that we don't want God. We treasure other things and other people more than God. Sin is not simply doing the wrong thing. Sin is an act of worship to the wrong God. Sin is idolatry. Sin isn't simply a bad decision, it's treason. Sin is pledging allegiance to ourselves and our idols above the creator of all things. What is sin? It's not I told a white lie. It's I chose to worship with my actions, words, thoughts, and motives someone or something other than God. Sin is just not about hating God, it's about loving something else. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn that they see in their hearts a stronger desire to live for their own glory than to live for God's glory. One of the things that naturally happens to pastors is that we become fast students of human nature. And one thing I know about people, I just learn about people all the time, and what's really scary is when you learn about people, you learn more about what's in your own heart. Is that when it comes to sin, we rarely mourn it. We rarely mourn our sin. Or at least we're very slow to mourn it. What do we do instead of mourning our sin? I came up with three things that we usually do instead of mourning our sin. The first is we minimize it. Minimizing sin begins when your inner defense attorney we talk about that at Spring Valley sometimes, don't we? That we all have a defense attorney living inside of us, that little voice telling us, you're not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Joe, you're wrong. I wish you were preaching something more positive this morning. Make me smile. We minimize our sin when we try and soothe ourselves with platitudes like, we're all sinners. Everyone does it. It doesn't hurt anyone. Have you ever said this one to yourself? After you've done something you know you should not have done, nobody's perfect. Yeah, no kidding. But catch this. When we start to tell ourselves alternate news about our sin, we end up in the wrong spot. See, if we're just people who are walking around saying, no one's perfect, everyone's a sinner, those are very true things. And yet, we can actually use those phrases that we try to give grace to other people to excuse ourselves from the sin that's in our hearts. Sometimes, it's not actually loving, compassionate, and kind to be telling yourself, nobody's perfect. Sometimes the most compassionate and loving and truthful thing you should be telling yourself is, is, I chose to worship myself instead of God when I did that. But we just prefer to say, ah, it's not that big of a deal, Joe. It's not that big of a deal. Stop, stop talking like this. And I just want to say to your defense attorney this morning, when you sin, you suppress the truth and, and you refuse knowledge of God and you choose to worship the created things instead of the creator. What do we do instead of mourning our sin? We blame shift. We blame shift. So I got a little story for you. Um, and I did ask permission. So some of you are going to think I'm a total jerk right now. I know that. But I asked permission to tell this story. I promise. Three times. So someone in my family 
got a speeding ticket on the way to church last week. <laughs> My son Joseph, we were, it was during worship, and I'm over here, and I'm trying to, you know, worship Jesus, and Joseph comes up to me, and he just whispers in my ear, Mom got a speeding ticket. Like, that's the first thing he said to me. And so my wife got a speeding ticket in the worst spot of 422, the part of 422 I always like to preach about, that 40-mile-an-hour zone, the construction zone, right? Like, you know, we've talked about that before, how terrible that part of 422 is, right? And she was going 62 in a 40. And, I, and, and so we started having this conversation, and here's what it went to. Can you believe he pulled me over for going 62? And then, and then I'm saying, like, that's ridiculous. I go, like, 82 on that road every day, and people are passing me. 62, you're going to cause an accident if you go less than 62. You're actually following the rules, the unwritten rules. And didn't you tell him you were a pastor's wife trying to get to church? Like, what is the deal? Like, why did you give her a ticket for 62 and a 40 where no one in their life has gone 40? It's ridiculous. Officer Steve, if you're here from Lower Pottsgrove, see me. Just kidding. We'll see you in court. Do you know what the truth is? We started having these conversations. And we are totally right. And yet, it's not Officer Steve's fault. He's doing his job. 62 and a 40 is speeding. It doesn't matter what everyone else is doing. We still did the wrong thing. And I say we because I've done it too. She just got caught. And don't we usually do this when it comes to our sin? We come up with all the reasons why the wrong thing is actually the okay thing. We are professionals at not taking responsibility for our actions. No one needs to be trained how to point the finger. Our pride seduces us into refusing to acknowledge, I'm wrong. Blame shifters have always blamed their parents, their boss, their work environment, their teachers, their neighbors, the government. Blame shifters can never just say, I'm wrong. I sinned. It's my fault. Here's the third thing we usually do instead of mourn over our sin. We become outraged. If you haven't noticed, we live in a culture of outrage right now. People are outraged over everything. We spend so much of our time and energy outraged over everybody else's actions. We don't spend our time and energy fighting for justice. We don't spend our time and energy showing compassion. We don't spend our time and energy speaking the truth in love. But we just spend a lot of time being outraged over everything. Do you know the problem with our culture of outrage? It blinds us to our own sinfulness because we spend so much time focused on other people's sins. I absolutely believe when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he means we should absolutely be mourning over what sin has done to people and to our world. I believe that. Part of mourning and part of getting ready to follow Jesus is to mourn how sin is destroying the world, how sin is destroying marriages, how sin is wreaking havoc in our own nation. But if we spend more time angry over the sins of others than we do mourning our own sin, we become self-righteous, 
proud, and unloving. But when we mourn our own sin first, we have the humility and compassion to mourn over what sin has done to our world and to people God loves deeply. But instead of mourning over sin, we just prefer to be outraged. Let me ask you this question this morning. Did you spend more time this week mad about what other people did or mourning over your sin? Here's another question I want to ask and answer this morning. What does mourning look like? I want to give you two biblical examples of what it looks like to mourn over your sinfulness. The first is in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. When God called Isaiah to be a prophet in Israel, he allowed him to see something that would change him forever. Isaiah had a vision of God seated on his throne in all his glory. And Isaiah tells us how he felt in the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. Isaiah, when he's in the presence of God, he says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What does the word woe mean? It's an impassioned expression of mourning. In the presence of God, Isaiah immediately began to mourn over his own sinfulness. We mourn our sin because God is holy. The second example is the Apostle Paul. One of the godliest men who ever lived lets us in on his struggling and mourning and wrestling with sin. Romans chapter 7 verses 21 through 25 says this. Paul says this, and and I, I immediately relate to this. I hope you immediately relate to this too. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I love verse 25. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. What we see here in Paul's life is like, I want to do the right thing, but sometimes I do the wrong thing. And the only place Paul has to go is Jesus Christ. And the only direction our mourning should go is towards Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, because some of you are thinking like, yeah, this is just talking about those who've never come to Christ before, and this should really only be for people who have never really repented of their sin, never really returned from their sin, but that's not at all what Jesus means. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he uses the present tense, meaning that mourning our sin is not something we do once, it's something we continue to do. Martin Luther The first line of his 95 thesis says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Followers of Jesus live lives marked by repentance. Mourning is not simply admitting you're a sinner. That's actually not that hard. There's a lot of people who 
don't love Jesus, who don't follow Jesus, who know that they've done wrong things. Mourning is not simply admitting you are a sinner. Mourning is also turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners. We don't do this once, we do this daily. Mourning and repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. And so we end with this. What does Jesus promise us when we mourn? When we realize that our sin is rooted in loving ourselves and not loving God. When, our sin is, when we realize that our sin is about suppressing the truth and believing lies and loving those lies. What do we do when we realize that we've sinned and then we need to mourn and we mourn rightly and we mourn and we grieve and we wail over our sin and we get serious about the fact that our sin is offensive to God and because of sin the wrath of God is being revealed? Jesus doesn't tell us to mourn over our sin because we are hopeless though. Jesus tells us to mourn over our sin because when we do, he comforts us. This is the strange thing about what Jesus is saying here. He invites us into grief so that we can receive comfort and relief from the biggest problem in our life, sin. When we bring our sin to Jesus, he doesn't punish us, punish us for it. He forgives it. Forgiveness and comfort for sinners like you and like me is only possible because Jesus Christ went to the cross Jesus died in our place for our sin. Jesus paid my penalty and your penalty for sin. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness, and that is true. But Romans 8 chapter 1 says that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. The wrath of God will come to all those who have refused Christ. But the comfort of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ will come to all those who mourn over their sin. And the only reason this is true is because Jesus has taken the punishment our sins deserved. Mourning over our sin doesn't lead us into a life of sadness. It leads us into a life of joy. Jesus tells us we're blessed when we mourn over our sin because mourning brings healing. Mourning brings reconciliation with God and with others. And mourning is an entry point for God's comfort to flood our lives. And there are some here today, you know there's things you need to mourn over in your own life. Maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time. You've made excuses. You've minimized. You've pointed the finger and you're just outraged about what everyone else is doing, but you're not mourning over your own sin. Today, I want to invite you into the blessed life. I want to ask you to grieve, mourn, and weep with me over sin. I want you to see your sin is offensive to God. I want you to know that Jesus went to the cross and died a brutal death in your place because of your sin. But I also want you to know that when you bring your sin to Jesus, and you confess it as sin, and you turn from your sin, God will comfort you. And that is the hope of the Christian life. Jesus invites us into mourning so that he can comfort us.
We're going to sing a song in just a moment, but I want to I want to share a story with you. On Friday night in our home, there's a pretty epic moment. My son Joseph, just about to turn 10, great kid. Love the daylights out of that boy. But like a lot of us, Joseph has besetting sins in his life. Besetting sins are those sins that we just kind of always deal with. And maybe we've mourned them, but they're there. And we know that we need God to do a deep work in our heart to deliver us from them. And so on Friday night, Joseph did the thing that he's done literally a hundred times before. And I said to Joseph, I said, go to your room. I'll see you tomorrow. That's it. And I took the garbage out, and we live in a condo, so I have to walk the garbage about maybe 50 yards to the dumpster. And at this point, Joseph is in his room, and I'm walking the garbage out, and I am just thinking about how that is not redemptive in any way. Like, how helpful would it be this morning if I just came here and said, you're wrong, that's it. Where's the redemption in go to your room, I'll see you tomorrow? Frustrated parenting. And so the Lord began to speak to me about how he wanted to redeem the situation with my son. And I'm like, okay, fine. And I was still a little upset, and I pulled Joseph out of his room, and he was crying. And I said, why are you crying? He said, because you hurt me, because you said that I'm always mean. And so we had a little trial at our house. I brought the person that Joseph was mean to, and I said, is Joseph always mean to you? And that little person said, yes. And then I asked Joseph's mom, I said, do you see Joseph being mean to this person? And that mom said, yes. And for the next three or five minutes, I began to help Joseph see, and I know God gave me so much wisdom in that moment. God helped me in kindness and in love and in grace to show my son his sin. And he began to weep, almost like I've never seen him weep before. His face was red, and you could see the blood vessels in his forehead. He was mourning. He was wailing. And you know what he said to me? He said, Dad, I've never seen it that way. And he melted, and he grieved, and he saw. And in that moment, I could see, blessed are those who mourn. See, it is God's grace when you see your sin because when you see it and when you acknowledge it and when you mourn over it, grace comes in. It is grace to mourn. It is grace to confess. And in those moments, I could comfort him and we prayed together and he apologized, not just in a, oh, I'm sorry kind of way, but in a pull this person aside, sit them down, look them in the eyes and say, I have sinned against you. And do you know what happened after we were done mourning? We celebrated the gospel of Jesus Christ in his life and in my life. There is grace in your mourning. Do not resist it. Do not ignore it. Do not minimize. Do not blame shift. Mourn. Mourn over what sin is doing to you. Mourn over what your sin is doing to others. 
and receive the comfort that can be found in Jesus Christ alone. He is here this morning. And he is not here to pour shame and guilt over you. But he's here to pour his comfort over you. But there's a prerequisite. Morning. So we're going to sing a song. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and maybe there's some here today who you just need to mourn. That doesn't mean you have to shed tears, but you know. And so I want to just kind of open up this space in front of the stage this morning and we don't have official altars, but maybe you know today this message is hitting you and, and you want to hide and you want to just leave, but I want to encourage you, if the Spirit is working in your life today, and you sense him drawing you. Maybe an act of your mourning today is just to come and kneel before the Lord. Maybe you're not ready for that, but you know you need to mourn and you wanna just sit down and do business with God. Maybe you're here today and you're not following Jesus and I wanna encourage you, you can come to Christ today. During this song, simply say, Jesus, I need you. I have done the wrong things. I've ignored you and I want you and I need your comfort, and I need your salvation, and I need your forgiveness. And I need to make my life about following you. Wherever you're at today, respond to the Lord.